Part 8. The Clean Plate Club My pop pulled some strings and got me into the commercial dishwashing trade back in the early 70s. I was only 10 years old, so it was a lot like when Mozart's dad got him into the music business. Pop was creating options for his multi-talented son, as Granddad Aleshire was training me in another field. Gramps handed me a shovel one day and said, Here, stick this in the ground. Then followed up with, Good, now you'll never be out of work. My prodigious ditch-digging and plate-scraping abilities never got beyond part-time vocation, but the dishwashing skill set did become a cog in the wholeness of my life journey. It led me to service, sacrifice, delusions of grandeur, and, ultimately, to humble reconciliation. Pop was a sucker for clean and tidy, and encouraged dutiful commitment to the noble order of dishwashers. He said there's always dignity in doing something nobody else wants to do, and that if a kid with soggy socks could smile and scour and spray the remnants of other people's pleasure... He would build character and could smile just about anywhere. On December 31, 1975, my buddy Bruce Michelson and I were the only two soggy sock kids on the planet that were willing to be dignified by the dish room at the Corner House Restaurant in Burnsville, Minnesota. The building was a repainted relic of a structure that was nestled in the wetlands of the Minnesota River Valley. It was built in the 1920s, and evolved like an unplanned Lego project till it became a 1960s supper club called the Embassy that featured a portico facade with heroic Greek columns adorned with flags of multiple nations. By the time it became the corner house, the portico had been artfully transformed into a pagoda and the menu added Chinese fare to the steak and starch. But direct access had been eliminated when Lindale Avenue Old Highway 65 became state-of-the-art Interstate 35. This redirected traveling peddlers and crooner-loving couples to consume their cigarettes, steaks, and old fashions at joints near exit ramps on a strip of freeway a few miles north in Bloomington. The River Valley was once home to Chief Black Dog and his band of Madwakanton Sioux, but there was no flag for their nation at the embassy. In 1965, the new political leadership brought a different vision in the form of a garbage dump to the marshy lowlands that surrounded the diplomatic restaurant. There was little objection from new residents who added to the desecration with refuse by the truckload. The site was ill-advised for a restaurant, let alone teenage dishwashers, even before it became toxic. Most of the basin is a natural floodplain, and the land had been submerged in fresh water several times in preceding decades. On the day of the eve of 1976, a thaw turned the lot behind the corner house into a sloppy mess that had begun to freeze by happy hour. The icy coat couldn't mask the acres of refuse next door, and wafting aromas hung in the air like leftover mistletoe in the lounge. Indigenous wildlife in the valley had come to be outnumbered by the type of undomesticated animals that are drawn to garbage dumps, like martini-swilling peddlers of the era 
were drawn to roadside liquor lounges. Bruce and I were oblivious to how, and how far, the site had degenerated. We embedded ourselves into the modern ecosystem for a buck sixty-five an hour, and were preoccupied with immediate conditions. The hot water heater had failed, and the sinks were plugged beyond the reaches of desperate coat hangers. We did our best to clean dishes, glasses, and utensils in stainless steel kettles filled with cold, soapy water that we'd haul to the back lot. We'd shoo scurrying rodents before adding a few more gallons of sewage to the embattled environment. We smiled and cussed and laughed and endured the evening, only to get stiffed for $11.55 each. Like the smattering of customers who dined from dubious dishware, our fortunes were ambiguous. A few months later, after a mysterious fire, the building would join rubber tires and checks in the landfill. Our usual cohort, Scott Pube Huberty, somehow avoided that character-building opportunity, probably because his standards were above polluted sanctuaries. He landed us a high-class gig at a dinner theater and music lounge, Marco Polo Supper Club. Teasing rats were replaced by barely adult servers in alluring black-and-white waitress outfits who loved to taunt pubescent teenagers. They'd show cleavage and reach for things beyond the humility of their polyester skirts to give us uncomfortable pause as we processed dish-laden bus carts that arrived in waves for six or seven hours. Summertime warms the air in Minnesota, and dish rooms become northern, all-inclusive resorts to houseflies who flock to the sauna conditions and pools of all-you-can-eat leftovers. When we weren't being taunted by grown-up girls, we'd revert to little boy games. Bruce devised a fly-killing contest that we tracked with pencil tallies on a towel dispenser. One point for a swat kill, two for a wet towel snap, and five for a sweeping barehanded snag. Twenty points was an ace, forty a blue max. I was the Red Baron and had more than fifty points one night when owner Milo came in for a spot inspection. He spied the scoreboard and jumped to a conclusion. What the hell's going on? he begged. I can't afford this. How can you break that many dishes? That's our fly-killing competition, I explained in a complaining voice, loud enough to be heard over the din and clatter of dishes and power-washing machines. Oh, he said as his eyes darted around the room at the invaders, who were buzzing our realm like Messerschmitts over Great Britain in 1940. And your tie clashes, I added in a tone that implied we weren't getting the love and dignity worthy of our commitment. He had to tolerate our occasional insubordination. We showed up to a place nobody else wanted to be, and, thanks to Scott's incredibly high standards, didn't leave until the sweat box was spick and span and actually looked a bit dignified. As a lead-up to the dynamic dishroom trio, I worked at the three Sweden House smorgasbord restaurants that our parents purchased from Pop's former employer, International Multifoods. My first ever paid gig, however, was on Sunday mornings at Eatery No. 4, Pickett's Family Restaurant in Rosemount, Minnesota. 
That's where pot must have paid local authorities to look the other way from child labor laws. I got paid a dollar per day and was told by mom to keep it quiet. I've since learned my indentured siblings got nothing and liked it. The small town venue was the favorite of the family's eateries. My folks bonded with locals as mom charmed cops, business owners, and a handful of Minnesota Viking football players who frequented the joint for free coffee and her engaging ability to hold forth in conversation. But mom passed, and the restaurants closed. A few years later, some high school buddies and I got pulled over by Rosemount Deputy Sheriff Ray McNamara during a joyride on the outskirts of town. He took our beer, told me he wouldn't call the old man if I went straight home, then said, We all sure miss your ma. I went straight home. I got a real job at a lumberyard to help pay for college and decided that, despite my incredible knack for removing hardened gravy from ladle handles, baked on cheese and onion from stoneware crocks, and every speck of egg yolk from every single fork tine, sometimes one had to let go of God's obvious gifts to explore new horizons. Plus, by the age of 12, I figured out it's more fun to be on the pleasurable, dish-dirtying side and wanted nothing to do with the kitchens of the restaurant industry. Want and duty are often two different things. After Mom and the restaurants were gone, Pop took up with a new division of Ecolab called ESS. It was an early adaptation of outsourcing, where the company would hire and manage dishroom employees to take the hassle off the plates of restaurant tours. When Pop got into a staffing jam or needed my keen instincts, he'd call me up to fill a slot. We'd drive around the tougher parts of town in a 12-passenger van to pick up employees who were usually on hard times or trying to make a new start. We'd creep up alleys where I'd hop out and go knock on a side window or whistle three times to let my coworkers know it was friend, not foe, who came beckoning with opportunity and a bus ride to dignity. I come from a family that knows all about hard times and new starts, but I learned from my ESS brothers in soggy socks that there's a whole nother level of toughness and perseverance. I was fortunate enough to discover new opportunities and avoid the kitchen side of the industry for many years, but my expertise had a calling back to the dish room during men's club Lenten fish fries at our church. More than a thousand faithful mackerel snappers would visit the school cafeteria for humble meals of fish and chips, with lots of tartar sauce and ketchup. I'd join soulmates like Kevin, Morgan, Scott, and Dan, and we'd welcome future dignitaries like Boy Scouts Peter Howard and Tommy Hedman to make sure the cup holder squares had no rings of tartar or tomato in the towers of plastic school lunch trays. Civic and patriotic duty made its call as well. Serving Our Troops, SOT, is a St. Paul-based organization dedicated to honoring the sacrifices of Minnesota's National Guard, the 34th Red Bull Infantry Division. The honoring group is led by a guy named Pat Harris, who has enlisted, motivated, and deployed enough volunteers to form his own division. 
They've served more than 100,000 steak dinners in St. Paul, Iraq, Kuwait, Croatia, Norway, and at bases throughout the United States. St. Paul's legendary Mancini's Char House is a primary supporter, and the family donated space and staff during hours they would typically be closed. They were hosting a big-screen virtual link meal for families at home and soldiers who had an extended deployment in Kuwait. The event was a daytime maneuver, and I observed dirty plates and pans that were amassing for a five o'clock ambush of an unsuspecting comrade of soggy socks, Mancini's nighttime dishwasher. I instinctively followed my training and fired up the Hobart machine to outflank the hordes of dishware. One of the Mancini brothers happened by and gave me a dignified wink of thanks that was as good as a medal. Life has a way of bringing false visions back to reality. That garbage dump in Burnsville was revealed as a disastrous error in science and judgment. And delusions of grandeur regarding my dishwashing career were revealed as well. The awakening began as soon as I started seeking acknowledgement. You know how it is. You do something that's supposed to remain between you, your conscience, and God. Then you erase the deed by bragging about it and what a swell person you are. I expected recognition in the dumbest place possible, my own kitchen. I got to thinking Mary Beth was taking for granted that I would do the dishes just because she did 98% of the cooking. And I made it a point to remind her of my exalted dishroom status. I've been washing dishes since I was 10 years old, I pontificated. I've washed more dishes, pots, and pans than you will ever touch or see. Yeah, she said as she threw a dish towel in my face. And your statue is going to be right next to the Tin Man's in the town square. In 2013, my nomination to the Dishwashing Hall of Fame disappeared into a stack of white plates covered with shrink wrap in the corner of a restaurant surplus store. During my final visit with Pop, we chatted about a lot of memories and I brought up my Sunday morning shift in the Rosemount dish room. He threw his head back with his dentured smile and bowed his head in a chuckle before looking up to grin. Oh my, yes, I remember, he laughed. You were the slowest dishwasher to ever work a sprayer. His laugh mellowed to a reflective grin as he paused to add, but you never left a bit of egg yolk on a single fork tine. A little character building, a little dignity, and the plates are clean.